Good morning. It is wonderful to <clears throat> be here with you this morning. Is that me or is that loud? Okay. Certainly thankful for the presence of everyone here. Thankful for those of you that would consider yourselves to be visitors. I hope that the things that I present to you this morning will be beneficial. They'll be edifying. They'll help you some way in your relationship with God. Today we continue looking at our study in the book of Romans. And we're getting near to the end as we've finished up Romans chapter 11 last week. And as kind of a review of what Romans is about, whenever you look up, begin looking in Romans chapter 1, that everything points to Christ, that the gospel is the power of God. It's the power of God unto salvation in chapter 2, that we shouldn't presume on the forbearance and the patience of God that that had a purpose, that that purpose was to lead to repentance in chapter 3. Paul introduces, begins introducing this idea of the law not being what served as justification and the Gentiles being a part of God's plan all along. And he goes to the Old Testament law to prove that. He goes to the prophets to prove that. He goes even to David to prove that. In chapter 4, he introduces Abraham and the faith of Abraham and the, the pedestal which the Jews held Abraham upon was great. So he used Abraham's faith to show them that Abraham was justified by his faith well before the sign of circumcision ever came into place, well before the Old Testament law came into place, hundreds of years as a matter of fact. At the end of chapter 4, he brings Christ back into the picture, and he talks about Christ, and there's this contrast in chapter 5 of Adam and Christ, and he talks about Adam and how that sin came into the world through one man and that death, sin, and therefore death, and that death passed on to all men because all have sinned. And we understand that it's that... Not that we have the guilt of Adam's sin upon us, but that we have the nature of Adam's sin. And he talks about Christ and the first fruits of Christ, how that there was one man centered into the world, and by another man the first fruits of grace entered into the world. And in chapter 6, he asks that very important question, should we continue in sin that grace may abound more? And he answers that emphatically with a no. And he recalls to them their baptism, what the purpose of their baptism, that they were resurrected to a newness of life, that they'd crucified the old man. Later on in chapter 6, he talks about them being slaves, that they were slaves of righteousness or obedience, or they were slaves of sin, that there's not another category in there. You are one of the two. In chapter 7, he, we are, he reiterates this fact that we are set free and that we're not apart from the law, and he uses the law in the marriage example to po point that. In chapter 8, he makes that statement, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and that we're called according to the Spirit, not to the flesh, and that we are sons of God's, and that we are not slaves of sin. And Paul, in chapter 7 and chapter 8, gets very personal, and something that we can all relate to there. He talks about this personal struggle that he has with sin, and dealing with that sin. And he, talk, he makes that phrase there, that statement there, oh, wretched man that I am, the things that I know that I shouldn't do, I do those things. And we can all relate to the very struggle that Paul went through, and even all the things that Paul knew, and how enlightened Paul was, he still had the same struggles that you and I have today. In chapter 9, Paul turns to God's sovereignty. God's supreme authority, and he talks about how that it was God, uh, by God, that his plan was put into place, that Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, that through the nation of Israel, his plan would come into place, and who are we to question God's plan? Who is, how is the, that which is being molded to look at the potter and go, why did you make me this way? And so, in chapter 10, 
he talks about the Jews trying to establish their own righteousness, and they failed because they didn't submit to God's righteousness, and that everyone that believes or everyone that has the faith, both Jew and Gentiles, will be saved, but it was Israel who didn't obey, and that the Gentiles who, being obedient, were now a part of this this plan that God had had since the beginning of time. In chapter 11, he begins talking about this root, this root that uh, nourished the branches of the tree and that tree, and that root was Christ. And there were the natural branches, which were Israel, and there were some uh, physical Israel that were a part of the remnant, but there were, they were not a part of spiritual Israel. Not all physical Israel was part of spiritual Israel, and that those Jews and Gentiles that had been grafted into the tree, into the root, they were all part of spiritual Israel. And I want us to notice as we look at all of this, all of these words on here, to drive home the point about righteousness here in the bottom columns or bottom rows, that it's all about God's righteousness and our righteousness, and that righteous, righteousness is needed, credited, demonstrated, how it's restored to Israel. And then here at the end, we're going to look at how righteousness is applied in our lives in the last few chapters of the book of Romans. And before we go into Romans chapter 12, I want us to go back to Romans chapter 11 and look at Paul's closing words there. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom of God, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So Paul ends this section on God's sovereignty by driving home that point. Who are we to question God? Have we ever been the one to counsel God? And he quotes Isaiah and he quotes Job in that passage. And he drives that home that all things are from him, through him, and to him. And the very next thing he says, I appeal to you, therefore. I appeal to you for this reason. I can't think of the number of times in my times that I've been teaching that I've used Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, first verses 1 through 3 in many different lessons. But whenever you leave it in its context, the gravity of that therefore is so much greater. All of the things that Paul has been establishing since Romans chapter 1 all the way up through Romans chapter 11, and then he pivots and says, I appeal to you for this reason. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. All of the grace, the mercy, all of God's plan, all of His providence, all of His miraculous things that He has done to get to this point that Paul has covered in, Romans, in the book of Romans. And then he says, I appeal to you that you present yourself a living sacrifice unto God. You're a part of this spiritual Israel. You're a part of this tree being supplied and nourished by the root, which is Jesus Christ. And I appeal that you present yourself a living sacrifice. And what he's driving at right from the get-go as we transition into this, the last few chapters are all about personal application. Up to this point, there's been a lot about the law and all of these things like that. But now... He's talking about personal application. Because of those things, it should motivate you to do these things now, which I'm going to talk about. 
And the first of those is commitment. There is no room for 90%, 75, 50% commitment. There is only room for 100% commitment. I want you to think about the terms of sacrifice. And I want you to look at Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that was made on our behalf and that commitment that was given. That was 100% commitment. And that's exactly what Paul's driving home from us, that we should have 100% commitment living a sacrificial life for the purpose and plans of God. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been through been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. And this is how we present ourselves as living sacrifices. He established this all the way back in Romans chapter 6. Not allowing our bodies or any part of our mind or thoughts or anything else to succumb to sin, to succumb to to the world, that we are committed to Christ. Paul explains how we are to present our bodies as a sacrifice. There are Three descriptions that he uses of how we're to present our bodies as sacrifice. He says, alive, holy, and pleasing to God. That's the three ways that we're to present ourselves as sacrifices. Whenever we talk about being alive in our spiritual life, we talk about we need to know that it's not just something, a mundane process that we go through every day. That our worship is not a mundane process. That our prayer life is not a mundane process. That we are alive in the Spirit, we are alive in the truth, and we are alive in the grace and mercy of God. That we are holy. That we thrive and strive to be holy as God is holy. And ultimately, everything we do being acceptable in the eyes of God. That is commitment. And I'm going to forewarn you today that as we go through this, your toes are going to be stepped on. There's no two ways about that. You can't read the verses that we're about to read and your toes not be stepped on. You can't read the verses that we read and look at our lives with proper self-examination and say, maybe I'm missing the mark a little bit there. But that was the intention That was Paul's intention all along, was to prove that sacrifice and unite the church in Rome and unite the church in Amarillo, Texas as well. The contrast here is being spiritually alive versus being spiritually dead. We are alive to God and not to this world. And I find it very odd that one of the ideas in our society about Christianity is that we just conform to what other people are doing around us. And the reality is, is if we're doing it right, we're not conforming. We're transforming. It's completely opposite of what the world is where we conform and do what the world says to do. He goes on to say, which is your reasonable service? It is eminently reasonable and rational for believers 
to dedicate our lives to Christ. Why? Because of what He's done for us? Because of all the principles that have been established throughout the book of Romans? We have salvation because of Jesus Christ. We have salvation through the gospel. We have the opportunity as Gentiles to be a part of God's plan. And for that reason, or for those multiple reasons, it is our reasonable service to give ourselves over to Him in 100% commitment. Now, he goes on to say, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Whenever we consider transformation, what do we think of? What do we think of scripturally? I find it odd, maybe a little bit coincidental, that the only other time this word is used, transformed, in the entirety of the New Testament is when Christ was at the transfiguration. That is the only other time this word is used. It was a complete transformation into something else. Casting off the world, as he talked about there in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He established this principle in Romans chapter 6 as well. Being baptized, recalling what they were doing, being established and walking in a newness of life, casting off the old man, crucifying the old man. That is transformation. Not doing those things and then going right back to the world, which was the question that was asked. Should we sin more that grace may abound? We'll understand that God wants us to put all of these principles into practice when we are renewing our minds. What we will do is we'll discern properly. We'll discern properly what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When we renew our minds, the issues of the world become easier to discern. We when we compare and contrast those things in the Scriptures with the things of the world, those things become easier to discern what God wants us to do. Not conforming to be like the world, but transforming to be in newness of mind. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he transitions into a proper thinking, and first and foremost, the proper thinking of how we should think of ourselves and how we should view ourselves. I want you to remember what he said in Romans chapter 11 when talking to the Gentiles. He, ta he told them not to be arrogant, that they had this place and this opportunity to be a part of this plan in spiritual Israel. He was telling them not to be arrogant, and he reiterates that point here that we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we are. And that we should view ourselves in the measure of faith that God has assigned. And this term, measure of faith, 
In studying this, the, the general interpretation of it is that God assigns a certain measure of faith to each person. And I don't believe that what Paul, that's what Paul's talking about at all. Another, and the reason I don't believe that's what he's talking about is because he's dealing with the subject of arrogance. And if God gave someone else a better measure of faith than he gave another person, wouldn't that easily make them become or more tempted to become arrogant? Another interpretation for the word measure is standard. Each according to the standard of faith that God has assigned. So it's not each person getting a certain amount of faith. It's about the standard of faith which God has established. The standard that he established all the way back in Romans chapter 4, whenever he talked about Abraham. How that Abraham was justified through his faith. And the standard being in that same fashion. So it's not about people getting certain measures, but the standard. And how we think of ourselves as far as that standard is concerned. How do we think of ourselves whenever we look at the world and we say, I'm not conforming myself to the world, but there are people in this world that we love and that we, cher that we cherish in our lives and we want them to be a part of the same gospel plan of salvation as we are. We can't look at them arrogantly. We have to look at them in the proper light. Therefore, we need to think of ourselves appropriately and soberly based upon the grace and faith which was given to us. And he goes on to talk about how we view others. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with, children, with uh, cheerfulness. And I want us to notice there on the left side all the things that he just talked about. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contribution, leaders, and mercy. Can you think of any other role in the church? Those are all the categories that we serve in. Those are all the functions of the body of the church. And whenever he's saying how we view ourselves, not to view ourselves arrogantly, that would definitely go how we view other members of the body of Christ. That we all have certain responsibility, that we all have certain functions, and that sometimes we may fall in different categories than these, and we may fall into multiple categories of these. But nonetheless, the point driving home that Paul is establishing is that we don't look arrogantly at one another, that we all have responsibilities, and that we are all part of the same body, and we need to work together. You know, in 1 Corinthians, he establishes this point as well how the body works together, and we're not to look at the, the lesser part of the body and say, well, you're not as valuable as other parts of the body. That you show the same honor to the lesser, what you perceive to be lesser, as you do the higher. Because we all work together for the same purpose. If it's in teaching, give it, all, give it your all. If it's an exhortation, if you're one who is an encourager, 
Fulfill that with everything that you've got. And there are some of these roles that we don't see. The one that it, who contributes. That's talking about monetarily. We don't see how much each other's, I guess some, some people do, but I don't see how much Carrie's putting into the church. So how can I look down upon somebody when I don't really know? Leaders, lead with zeal. Have a passion for the growth of the church. Have a passion for the body of Christ. Putting ourselves in the appropriate place and understanding of our role in the body. That's first, Paul's first point in Romans chapter 12. He says, let love be genuine. Let your love be genuine. And as you read through Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 14, we begin to see this idea of love spreading into all aspects and areas of our lives. And I find that somewhat odd because in my years in the church, when we go to Romans chapter 13, it's usually to maybe grind an axe a little bit on something with the government's doing. Romans chapter 14, I remember when I was younger, that was, that was the no drinking chapter. <laughs> and it's been all about love is intertwined in all of these relationships that we have. Let your love be genuine. Hate evil, cling to good. Love with affection. Unfortunately, the world, world tends to think that love is about emotion. And the reality is love is a decision. Love is through action. If you've been married for any amount of time, you understand the idea that sometimes love is a decision. That it's not always feel good. And there are problems and there are struggles. And you have to decide to love your spouse some days. Not slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Persevering in tribulation. You know, when I think of persevering, I tend to think of when I go to somewhere where I have to stand in line because I'm not a patient person. And I'm going to persevere, but I'm going to complain about it the whole time. <laughs> That's not persevering. And we tend to think of persevering as, well, I just got to take it. That's not persevering either. Persevering is dealing with problems, struggles, tribulations in life with patience and hope. Understanding that this isn't the end. Understanding that after we go into the ground, what's on the other side is much more valuable and much more rewarding than anything this life has to offer. That's the proper patience and hope. And in tribulation... 
I know when we talk about tribulation, we oftentimes tend to kind of wipe that aside because we don't have the persecution that they had going on in the early New Testament church. But the reality is, is there is tribulation every day for each and every one of us. We have struggles all the time. If any of you have kids that are in high school, they are going through tribulation every single day. The struggles that they have to deal with are far greater than the struggles that I had to deal with when I was in high school. And that doesn't mean that even the tribulations are self-inflicted. Sometimes we make bad choices. Sometimes we make bad decisions. And those tribulations are self-inflicted. Does that make it any less of a tribulation? So don't wipe this admonitions aside because we don't have the persecution that the early New Testament church had. These are there for our admonition and growth just as they were for Rome under the heavy hand of the Roman authorities. Be constant in prayer. You want to know how you successfully do all the things that he just talked about? You pray to God. You build that relationship with God in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. One of the greatest gifts that we have is not money, but it's time and opening our homes and our lives to one another. That is a principle that is established over and over again in the New Testament. How often do we take that opportunity to be hospitable? How often do we take the time out of our busy lives to open our home, to share a meal, to share in fellowship? I can't tell you the number of times my wife and, have, and I have had the discussion, man, it's been too long since we've had people over. Well, we've had, you know, band, soccer. You know, someday the band and the soccer and all that's not going to be a part of our lives. And we've missed out on years of hospitality and fellowship. Are we taking the time to help the church in hospitality? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And I have to be honest, in, in the years that I've looked in the book of Romans, I looked at those previous verses and looked at all of those and said, those are fruits of love. But I've never looked at our relationships with other people in the same light. I've looked at these as kind of separate things, but whenever you leave them in their context, these are also fruits of love. Fruits of love with those in the church, fruits of love with those outside the church. How we conduct ourselves day in and day out. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Once again, we're back to this. Don't be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. 
I don't know if I've ever heard that verse read in a sermon. Associating with the lowly. And the context of what's going on is obviously he's talking about those that are outside the church and those that you may have problems with. But this sentence, associating with the lowly, and whatever you perceive to be lowly is irrelevant. Because at the end of the day, what you perceive to be lowly is a soul that's just as valuable as your soul or the soul of your spouse or the soul of your children or the soul of anybody in this room. The gospel call is for everyone. We cannot overlook those who we don't think are worthy of our time or worthy of the gospel message. That word lowly has many different translations. But the sentiment is the same. It once again goes back to how we perceive ourselves, not in arrogance. Repay no man, no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, living peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I've highlighted some of those on the left side. Don't repay evil with evil, but be honorable in the sight of all. And I, as I studied this <clears throat> over the last month, you can't help but read these verses as you begin to te- think about teaching about them and go, well, how have I done in these things in my own personal life? And I have to be honest with you whenever I kind of began looking at these relationships outside the church and those that maybe have wronged me, and I can go three, three instances in the last four months. And the first one was I pulled up to a customer to go in to take an order, and as I pulled up, I needed to get some work done on my laptop, and a guy walks out of the store and begins pacing in front of my truck and smoking a cigarette. And he's staring at me the whole time. And he's very aggressively smoking the cigarette. And I'm like, what's this dude's deal? So I'm like, well, I'm going to work on my laptop a little bit longer. He lights another one. Same thing, pacing back and forth. As he gets to the end of that cigarette, he puts it out on my hood. Well, I immediately bell out of my truck come around the corner, and I'm like, what, what are you doing? And he, he looks at me and goes, I thought you were somebody else, and takes off running. There was, I was so confused at that whole thing that had just happened. But as I got in my truck, I realized that was not the appropriate way to handle that situation. That was not appropriate at all. What I should have done was I just put my truck in reverse and drove somewhere else and came back later. The second instance, once again, in my vehicle, I'm pulling into another customer and a guy blows through a yield sign. And as I'm pulling into the parking lot, he kind of has to just go in with me or he's going to hit me. And he rolls down his window and I roll down my window and he's yelling and screaming and cussing at me. And I thought, this is how you get shot. 
So I just simply said, you know what? My bad. I wasn't paying attention. Sorry. And he goes, okay, sorry for yelling at you. And I was like, you know, kind of handled that one right. You know, my third instance is my daughter goes, we have a gym membership. And at this gym, you're not allowed to work out if you're lift weights, if you're under the age of 16. And she was there by herself and she was confronted by another member at the gym about not being 16. And she's on, you know, this was about a week before her 17th birthday. And I mean, looking at her size, you could see how somebody might be confused by that. But it was none of this lady's business. And she's telling us how this whole thing, how she went through all this stuff. And I'm immediately getting my keys. I'm like, we're going up there. And she's like, no, dad, don't we? You know, and I was like, okay, I'm going to call him. She's like, no, dad. And she tells me what she did. And to be completely honest, my 17-year-old daughter handled that far better than I probably would have, which is pretty sad. And whenever you compare Paul's words to your life, what is the truth that comes to the top? When we're dealing with conflict for those outside the church, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. You know, this goes back to that renewing of the mind. By nature, when someone wrongs you, you don't want to feed them. By nature, when someone wrongs you, you don't want to give them something to drink. You want to tell them that they wronged you. You want to get back at them. That's natural man. But Paul says you need to renew your mind. That's not how you deal with those that wrong you. You deal with it in a godly way. And I find the the transition from there talking about God being the one to avenge and not taking vengeance for ourselves as he transitioned to chapter 13, the perfect segue, because that's exactly what the governments are there for. They're a part of that vengeful process, if you will, whenever we're wronged. That's what the courts are for. That's what the system's there. That's why it's all been put in place. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. But you have no fear of the one who is an authority. Or would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Governing authorities refer to all those who exercise legitimate authority in our lives. And we've, there's many lessons and, lessons and instances that we can look in the Scriptures about our responsibility to submit. And I think an appropriate synonym for this is to yield. Are we going to yield to the governing authorities? And he gives the reason is we're to yield to governing authorities because there's a no authority apart from God. And this is something that God has allowed to happen. Just as when Israel said, give us a king, God told Samuel, it's not you you're rejecting, it's me. But I'm going to allow them to have a king. He allowed that authority under the rulership of a king to happen in Israel. He allows authority in this world. Does that mean that God is going around placing, you know, a capitalist society or a democratic society and he's oh, in one place and over here he's, he's placing a communist society and a, or a fascist society? Is, is that what he's doing? No, he's just... 
this idea or rule, allowing man to have authority and rule is one that God has ordained and allowed to happen. And it leads to the natural conclusion in verse 2 that we don't resist the governing authorities because God has given the authority. And ultimately, we are answerable to God. Now, you could go through many instances on, or many scenarios on the things that we should do, the things that we shouldn't do. And that's oftentimes what we do when we look at Romans chapter 13, is we go and find whatever thing that's going on in the world and say, this is the authorities and what they should. And that's true. But that's not the crux of what Paul's driving at here. That's not what he's trying to get us to see. He's getting us to understand that when we resist, we're resisting what God has established. And when we resist that, we're really resisting God's will. Now, does that mean that there are some immoral and corrupt governments? Well, yeah. The church in Rome was under one, under one of the most immoral and corrupt governments mankind has ever seen. Paul was still telling them to yield to the government. I want you to think about the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon is a letter written to a slave owner of a slave that had run away and was being sent back. So we don't submit whenever we agree. And we don't resist when we disagree. Did I say that backwards? I think I did. Because whenever we resist, we're resisting part of, uh, against God's plan. And Paul continues that governments are in existence as a terror <clears throat> for men. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So he gives the purpose, God's purpose in authorities and in governing and government. Governing authorities rule so that we're able to deal with those who engage in bad conduct. I mean, let's be honest. One of the reasons that people don't go out and do some of the horrendous things that are out there because of the sword of the government. Because they will be punished by the government. Remember, Paul was instructing individuals not to seek vengeance, but to leave room for the wrath of God. And this is the way, one of the ways that God does this. That God isn't going to find those people in our lives that do us wrong and strike his wrath out and pour his wrath out on them. That in many instances, the government is the wrath of God, the hand of God that pours out his vengeance. The government doles out that sword. And we subject ourselves to the authority and the governing bodies to avoid the sword. I think it's important to point out here that Paul command these instructions, admonitions, commandments that Paul are giving are not contingent on whether we live in a democracy or capitalistic society. That these are universal rules and these are universal truths. Which means I have to go down two rabbit trails 
that I don't want to go down, but I have to. <laughs> the first of those is there are bad governments. And throughout the history of mankind, there have been a lot of bad governments. God didn't put those in place just so they can hurt people or cause harm. He allowed for the authority of man to be established over people and gave that authority over. Number two, when, what about when the government tells us that we can't do things like worship? What are we to do? Or an even better example, one that's a little bit more realistic, to be honest. Last count, there are 20 countries in the world that don't allow for spanking of children. There have been two states in the United States that have tried to pass laws that make it illegal to spank children. One of them made it legal after a certain age, which I believe is the age of three, through the age of 12. And if you're spanking your child after the age of three, you're way behind the curve. Just throw that out there for you. You go to the book of Proverbs, five different instances in the book of Proverbs, Solomon admonishes us to spank our children, to discipline our children in physical discipline. So am I going to tell you as a teacher not to spank your children if the state of Texas, which I think we're pretty far from that, but if the state of Texas says you can no longer spank your child? I wouldn't teach that. Not when God's word expressly says that's the way you raise a child. You think about Peter in the book of Acts when they were preaching the gospel and they were taken aside and they were beaten. And they asked them, told them to stop doing it. And you, what was Peter's response? Should I obey you or, man, or God? So there are times and instances where I guess what you would call civil disobedience that is allowed for in those situations where we can't take the word of man and the commands of man and push aside God's commands and respond and what we're supposed to do. I am disturbed oftentimes at how I see people who wear the label of Christians act based upon the policies and legislations of our governments. I am disturbed by the things that I see on social media of those that would call themselves Christians and the way they talk about dignitaries and authorities. Because we're going to talk about honor here in a minute. But it's disturbing because Western Christianity has taken this idea that democracy is a part of our Christianity. And it's not. We happen to live in a democracy, and we should be Christians first. 
We can't intertwine those things and try to establish a different set of rules. I'm going to be honest. There are plenty of times that I absolutely hate the things that the government does. If you've ever left the United States and come back in, you have to go through, I have suddenly slipped my mind as what it is you have to go through to get back in the country. Oh, you know what it is. You have to stand in this ridiculous line to go to a kiosk, scan your passport, it prints out a picture of your passport, then you have to go stand in another ridiculous line and take that to a customs agent. Customs, that's what it is. You have to take it to a customs agent, hand him or her the picture and the passport. They look at both of them and they look at you and they go, okay. Why isn't my passport enough? It's ridiculous. And you know my love and affinity for lines, so by the time I get to that point, I'm just... I really want to say something to somebody, but I'm, that's how you get pulled aside and get searched. So I've, I've decided I shouldn't do that. He goes on to say, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God, attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So you have a responsibility to pay your taxes. There is no reasonable excuse for a Christian to deny paying his taxes. He says it's for this reason, this government, this authority, this body that's been allowed to be put in place, it requires money, you have to pay your taxes. But he goes on to establish some other principles. Pay what you owe. Revenue to him, revenue, respect, and honor. If the President of the United States walked in today, whether you agreed with his policies or not, there is a certain amount of honor that has to be paid. I'm sorry. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, and being obedient and paying proper respect to the proper people. And not talking ill of dignitaries. I remember a few years ago, I saw someone on social media say, um, you know, the, it, it was a comment to God, you took my favorite actor, you took my favorite singer, you took this other person that was my favorite person in whatever category. But at the end, it says, you know, Barack Obama is my favorite president. I was like, that's just mean. And it's unnecessary. Paul commands very clearly that we are to owe what we need to owe. And at the end of it, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This text has been used by some to teach that Christians cannot have any debt whatsoever. And if that's what you get from this passage, you are missing what Paul is saying. All this time, beginning in the beginning of Romans chapter 12, he's established the same 
principle over and over again. That love is the standard. Pay everything to everyone and love is the standard. Yes, you're going to have, we might have debts. Yes, it may be unwise to have debt. But if you look historically throughout the scriptures, God has allowed for loans and debt to take place. He allowed for people who got into too much debt to sell themselves into slavery to pay off the debt. So that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about at the end of all of it, pay what you owe, and the only thing, the only debt that is remaining is love. Love is always our debt. We must pay it daily, and yet we always owe it. He uses this example three different times, that love is the fulfilling of the law, and he concludes it. Love does no no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. At the end of all of it, Paul is wanting us to understand our relationships with God is built upon the premise of love, with those in the church are built on the premise of love, with those outside the church are built on the premise of love, and even our responsibility to the government is built on the premise of love. He concludes by saying, besides this, you know that the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And he perfectly puts a bow on this at the end of chapter 12, where he began in verse 1. I appeal to you for this reason, to renew your mind and transform your lives. That you take no part in these things of the world, you allow no provisions for the flesh, and you seek Christ in every way. I want us to take the time to examine ourselves when we read passages like this in their proper context. And I struggled mightily whether to keep this in a single chapter or do two chapters, and I I apologize if I ran over a lot of things very quickly, but I believed chapter 13 and chapter 12 are completely together in the sense of understanding what God wants us in our relationships in all aspects of our lives to be driven by love. And remember what he talked about in Romans chapter 5 and the love that Christ had for you and I. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were undeserving of his mercy. We were undeserving of his grace. And while we were yet sinners, he died for us. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and to also the Greek. Because of that great love that he had for us, 
He gave us the gospel, the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wants us to be obedient to that gospel. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, do you not presume in the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This kindness and mercy that He had was not to allow for us to do whatever we want, but to understand that it leads us to a penitent heart and that we're a repentant people. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, it says, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We stand and rejoice because we have faith. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, Do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. And we've reiterated this point over and over again. This wasn't a command that Paul gave them. This was something that he was recalling. This is something that they had already done. And he wanted them to reflect on what that did for them, what the baptism ultimately represented for them. That in those waters of baptism, they met Christ and being resurrected to a newness of life. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For at the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The question this morning, in light of what God has done for us, and the plans that he set forth so that you could have salvation. Have you responded in this way? Have you taken the time to establish your faith in him and be repentant, confess his name, and ultimately be baptized? If you haven't done that, we can help you this morning. We have water that's ready. We can help you be baptized, being resurrected to a newness of life, putting off the old man. I understand also as we read passages like this, sometimes it's, it's hard. Sometimes we examine our lives and we, get, we admit, we realize that we're not doing what we need to do. Maybe we don't conduct ourselves when people wrong us in the way that we should. Maybe we don't look at the governing bodies in our lives with a proper respect. Sometimes we need help and sometimes we just need to go in God to go to God in prayer. And we can help you with that this morning. We can pray for you on your behalf. If you would find yourself in either of these categories, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.